Well, uh, this morning for our uh, Bible reading, I want to share with you one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I, it just excites me reading this. And uh, it's one of my f- absolute favorites uh, to preach on as well. And so I hope as we go through this chapter of the Bible, uh, it'll excite you as much as it excites me. I hope my excitement is infectious uh, to you this morning because it would make me no more uh, so happy uh, to, to share the excitement I have about this chapter. So I want, to, I want to ask you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Uh, and of course, Revelation has uh, all to do with the events uh, leading up to Jesus' second coming. But it looks at a long timeline of events. It uh, starts even as far back as uh, the time of Jesus in the early 2000s. It goes through uh, the periods of history that we've uh, gone through and all the way through to the present day today. So today, Revelation 11, we're looking at an event that is in recent history, um, but uh, it also points forward to more to come. And before we go any further, uh, let's just bow our heads uh, quickly for prayer. God, we just thank you for this amazing chapter in the Bible. And uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, helping to give us wisdom and understanding, and to be able to apply this to our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, Revelation 11. This is uh, the apostle or the disciple John, one of the disciples of Jesus. He's on the island of Patmos, and Revelation is describing this big vision uh, that is given to John all about the events that will lead up to God establishing his final kingdom, a kingdom Uh, built on peace and love, a a kingdom free of sin and suffering. And so Revelation 11 is an often overlooked chapter, but one that is very important, giving us these events that will lead up to the establishing of God's kingdom. So let's start just with the first two verses. It says, Then I, this is John, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and don't measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Okay, so already we've got a lot of symbols here to unpack. (coughs) Pardon me. And the first is, it says that God's people are measured. But the Gentiles who are not worshipping the temple, they're not measured. So we want to figure out who are the Gentiles and what is this measurement. Well, Gentiles is a word for non-Jewish people, but it can't be referring to non-Jewish people because there are plenty of non-Jewish people, plenty of Gentiles who are worshipping God. You and I are Gentiles today who are worshipping God. So this can't be referring to uh, ethnic Gentiles Instead, this is referring to anyone who has not chosen to enter into God's covenant. Remember, uh, we Gentiles, were told, we are grafted in to Abraham's family tree. We become a part of the, the Jewish nation in a spiritual sense. So even if we're ethnically uh, non-Jewish Gentiles, spiritually, God sees us as part of his covenant community. So the Gentiles here are referring to those who do not worship God. Whatever race they're from, whatever part of the world, it's referring to anyone who doesn't worship God. 
And then we have to think, well, what is the measurement? Why is God measuring the people who worship him? Do you think it's a, he's trying to get their height in centimeters or inches here? <laughs> I don't think he is. I don't think God's very interested in measuring people's height. He's not, uh, he doesn't have a stick saying, you have to be this tall to enter into heaven. So God's not trying to measure our height. Uh, he's not trying to figure out if we're six foot or uh, five foot, whatever it is. It makes, <laughs> it makes far more sense that God is measuring the character of his people. This is a much more important measurement, the character of his people. Uh, we might refer to this measurement as a judgment. And if we think of it like that, you might think, well, the Gentiles have it better, don't they? Why do, why do God's people get judged, but the Gentiles don't? The Gentiles are missing out on God's judgment. Well, this is actually good news for God's people, because this is a judgment that is in favor of them. This is a judgment where God, he looks at the character of his people, and he says, I make a positive judgment that my people are not guilty, that they're innocent, and they're deserving of eternal life. Now, of course, that's not because of how good we are, but because of how good Jesus is. Jesus, he stands um, as, a, as a mediator between God and his people. So really, when God's looking at his people and getting ready to measure them, he's looking at Jesus. He's measuring the character and righteousness of Jesus. So it's actually very good news that God's people are measured. And because then God is able to say, these are my people and they deserve eternal life. The Gentiles, those who don't worship God, are left out. And so they don't get the opportunity to have God declare them as legally righteous like you and I. So they're actually missing out and we get an incredible blessing. It's an incredible privilege. <clears throat> but then we're told that these Gentiles, or those who don't worship God, are going to persecute God's people for 42 months. It says they tread underfoot for 42 months. And this is a period of time uh, that we see all throughout the Bible. Oh, sorry for missing this. <coughs> this is a... a period of time we've seen over and over in the Bible. So in Daniel 7, this time of God's people being persecuted is referred to as a time, a time, times, and a half a time, or one year, two years, and half a year. So three and a half years. Three and a half years is also 42 months. And 42 months is 1,260 days. So the Bible's giving us the same symbol, or sorry, the same period of time, but using different symbols, different ways of explaining it. So it gives it to us in days, in months, and in years. So 1,260 days, 42 months, or a time, time, half a time. They're all talking about the same period of time, which is a long stretch of time when God's people are being persecuted by those who don't believe in him. <coughs> And like the other symbols in the Bible, uh, other prophetic symbols in the Bible, we understand that they represent something else. The same is true for these days. Throughout Bible prophecy, whenever we see a mention of days, we're to interpret it as a year, a day for a year. It's a recurring theme all throughout Bible prophecy. Uh, because if God's people were persecuted for 
1,260 literal days, or three and a half years, it's not a very long period of time. It's not really, a, not really a, a big climactic event um, for this long persecution period that God's trying to illustrate. So it makes far more sense that this is 1,260 years for this long climactic period of God's people being persecuted. So the question is, okay, when did these 1,260 days begin? Well, the, the sad irony of this period is that the, the power that persecuted God's people the most was actually the church itself. The church during the medieval, or we call it the Dark Ages, or the Middle Ages, was the one that was persecuting God's people. The church had become corrupt. Uh, it was looking at uh, it was constantly involved in military affairs like the crusades and inquisitions and if anyone disagreed with the church they were strictly punished Uh, some of the most vocal people who were critical of the church were burnt at the stake referred to as heretics so god actually predicted he said eventually the church is going to become corrupt and it's going to become so uh, unlike what god intended for it that he basically says it's no longer my church. My true people are actually the ones being persecuted by those who claim, oh, we're God's people, we're the church. So the church during the medieval ages was incredibly corrupt um, and were actually persecuting God's true people. And so all we have to do then is look at, all right, when did the church gain this power in order to do that? And that happened in the year 538, AD, the papal church gained this power, gained religious, uh, political, and military power, and then for 1,260 years persecuted God's people. Anyone who came up and said, there's something wrong here, the church isn't doing this right, were persecuted for their faith. So this is the 1,260 years, the 42 months, or the three uh, and a half uh, three and a three and a half year period. They're all trying to tell us the same thing, that there was a point in history where God's people were persecuted by the church at the time, a church who said that they worked for God when in fact they didn't. So we've thrown around a lot of numbers, a lot of dates. Our summary so far, all you need to remember is God's people are judged as righteous because of what Jesus does and that God's people were persecuted for over a thousand years. That's all you need to remember Uh, as we keep going. All right, let's get into a few more verses. It gets even more exciting as we keep going. So in Revelation 11.3, it says, God says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So there we go. That's the same time period again. 42 months, 1,260 days. Now, these two witnesses, they are olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So God 
during this period of persecution of God's people, God says, I'm not going to leave my people, uh, I'm not going to abandon them, I'm not going to leave them without anything. During this persecution time, I'm going to send two witnesses, and they're going to prophesy against the corruption and the persecution that takes place in this time. And he says that these two witnesses have power to perform miracles. Now, what's interesting about these miracles is this isn't the first time we see them appear in the Bible. Uh, These have appeared in other Old Testament prophets. So, for example, the two witnesses, they performed the miracles of the prophet Elijah. Elijah brought fire down from heaven, and he also shut it up the heavens so that no rain fell on on the earth. Those are two of the miracles the two witnesses performed. The two witnesses also performed the miracles of the prophet Moses. So Moses turned water into blood, the, the, the water of the Nile. And he also brought uh, many plagues, the famous ten plagues that struck Egypt. So whoever these two witnesses are, they have a lot in common with Elijah and Moses. They're doing the exact same miracles that Elijah and Moses did. So the question then needs to be, okay, well, well some people immediately think then, the two witnesses must be Moses and Elijah. But I think that's a little bit far-fetched. It would mean Moses and Elijah uh, lived for 1,260 years, that they were walking around in the Middle Ages. Uh, you know, Moses and Elijah went to jousting tournaments and survived the Black Plague. You know, it gets a little bit far-fetched, doesn't it? So I don't think it's literally Moses and Elijah here. There's something else maybe it's worth looking at how is it that Moses and Elijah performed these miracles? By what power were Moses and Elijah able to do these miracles? Because whatever power it is, it's the same power that's being given or, or is within these two witnesses. Let's have a look at what, uh, by what power Moses and Elijah performed these miracles. So for example... When Moses went to speak to the Pharaoh, he says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That's the very first time Moses speaks to the Pharaoh, saying, Thus says the Lord God, let my people go. Later on, he says the same. Uh, The Lord says to Moses, Rise early in the morning, stand before the Pharaoh, and thus say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go. For at, this time, for at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart. So we're getting the mention of the plagues. God specifically says, take my word to Pharaoh and let him know that if he doesn't let my people go free from Egypt, uh, get them out of slavery, plagues will come upon them. So we're starting to get a bit of a recurring theme. Let's see if we can follow this up with Elijah. What about Elijah? Um, by what power did Elijah perform his miracles? The very first uh, time Elijah goes out, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying... God would always give the specific message to the prophet Elijah and Moses to give. Uh, Another example. It came to pass after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah had decreed... No rain. He shut up the heavens like one of the two witnesses. And now the word of the Lord is coming to him and saying, I'm going to send rain. The time 
of drought is over. So there's this overwhelming recurring idea that Moses and Elijah had the ability to perform these miracles because the word of the Lord had come to them, or they were speaking on behalf of the God who had sent them. The only reason they were able to do these miracles was God had given them his word, given them a message, and said, you need to go and perform this. So we're starting to get a little bit of a picture about who these two witnesses are. Whoever they are, they're somehow tied to this idea of the word of God or the word of the Lord. But it also says they're like two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the God of the earth. This is really unusual, right? Uh, they're two olive trees and lampstands. This is clearly another symbol. But this isn't the first time in the Bible we see this symbol again. Have a look in uh, Zechariah chapter 4 with me. Zechariah chapter 4, one of those uh, often overlooked books in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 4 is another prophet that God spoke to. <coughs> and here God gives Zechariah a vision that is very similar to the one in Revelation chapter 11. And it's going to help kind of give us that final piece to figure out how the two witnesses and the word of the Lord and these prophets and miracles all come together. So Zechariah is having a vision and uh, in verse 2, uh, Zechariah chapter 4, <coughs> we'll start in verse 1. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of sleep. And the angel said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my lord? So you're not the only one who's wondering, what's the deal with the, these lampstands and olive trees? Zechariah is the one having the vision, and he doesn't get it. He goes, tell me, what am I looking at? Verse 5, Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So Zechariah is having this dream of two olive trees and two lampstands. And when he asks the angel, he says, What am I looking at? The angel gives him two answers. He says, This is the word of the Lord. Now, this should catch our attention because we've already seen this in Moses and Elijah, haven't we? Moses spoke. The word of the Lord came to Moses. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now it's coming to this man, Zerubbabel. The second answer is the spirit. He says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit is what filled these prophets. Uh, the Holy Spirit came into these prophets and allowed them to speak the word of God. When the prophets came to write down the Bible for us, the very uh, literal word of God, they were inspired by the Spirit. The Spirit allowed them to do this. And uh, if we go to verses 11 and 14, we get a bit more detail as well. <clears throat> then I answered and said to the angel, 
What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand that it's left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then the angel answered me and said, Don't you know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Now that, uh, that language should sound familiar to us, doesn't it? The two witnesses also stand before the Lord God of the whole earth. So clearly, Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11, they're together helping us put together this image of what these lampstands, these olive trees, these two witnesses are. They're connected to the prophets, they're connected uh, to each other. It's all got to do with this idea of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is what the olive trees and the lampstands represent. The word of the Lord is what lets the two witnesses perform these incredible miracles. Now, if I were to ask you what the word of the Lord or the word of God is, what would you immediately think of? Think of the Bible, don't we? Not only that, but we're told there are two witnesses. Can you think of a way in which the word of God comes in two parts? Exactly. Right here in your hands, you've got the two witnesses. The two witnesses are the word of God. And we find it in two parts. The books of the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant before Jesus, and in the books of the New that come after him. The word of the Lord is here in your hands or in your lap or in your, on your phone today. These are the two witnesses that are spoken of in Revelation. So God uh, ensured that his word would be with his people during this time of persecution. He never abandoned them. He didn't say, uh, figure things out yourself. God ensured that his word was preserved all throughout this persecution period. But it says the two witnesses, they're in sackcloth during this period. So they're in mourning. Uh, they're in mourning because they're being oppressed, they're being persecuted. Satan did his best to try and get rid of the Bible. The Bible was not made accessible to people during this time. It was written in Latin, and only the priests understood that. So you couldn't even read the Bible for yourself. <coughs> That's right. And yet, despite Satan's best efforts to suppress these two witnesses... They still are triumphant. Well, let's read uh, some more about what happens to these two witnesses. So we understand they're persecuted, but God preserves them. But then there's a bit of a plot twist to the story. Verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies for three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, 
send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So now we get a shocking twist that the two witnesses they've been persecuted for over a thousand years, but now they've been killed. Someone has killed the two witnesses. We've got a bit of a crime scene here to investigate. The question is, where and when were the, was uh, the Bible killed and who did it? Where, when, and who killed the Bible? Let's start with where and when. Where and when is a bit uh, easier for us to figure out. Where and when? Well, when would be just before... Sorry, that should be 1798. <laughs> That's a typo. Not that recent. 1798. Why? 1798 is the date where the 1,260 years finishes. And part of their testimony is that they are, their dead bodies are lying in the street. So even in their death, they're still a witness and a testimony to the people. Well, we'll get there. <laughs> so the, their testimony finishes, uh, and so they're killed and they're ri- risen back from the dead just before the year 1798. So we've got, a, we've got a time period to look for, any time just before 1798. What about where? Well, we're told it's spiritual Egypt, spiritual Sodom, and the place where Jesus died, which is the place of Golgotha. So really we need to look at what does the Bible have to say about all these places? Well, it doesn't take too much to figure out. Egypt was a place known for its refusal refusal to acknowledge God. When Moses went up to God uh, Moses went up to the Pharaoh and he said, "The Lord God says you need to let your people go." Pharaoh says, "Who is this God that I should obey him?" He says, Who's this guy? And Pharaoh rebels against God. God sends ten plagues, and he continues to be hard-hearted. He continues to refuse to let the slaves be free. So Egypt, throughout the Bible, is this place that represents a rebellion against God and a rejection, a, a, a refusal to admit that he is real and has power. Sodom is very famous for being a place of immorality and violence. So it's all to do with uh, sin and uh, a rejection of God's law. And Golgotha, of course, is a place where Jesus died. Uh, and Jesus says something very interesting to the Apostle Paul. He says, if you persecute my people, you persecute me. So we're looking for, again, a, a place where God and his people are being persecuted. So the question we need to ask is, is there a place and a time in history just before 1798, not 1978, just before 1798, in which a a nation turned their backs on God, persecuted God's people, they engaged in immorality and sin, and made an attempt to kill the Bible. It's a place uh, and time in history that is well known to most people. And we find the when and the where and the who in the nation of France during the time of the French Revolution. Well, what do I mean by that? What's the French Revolution got to do with any of this? Well, here's just a little brief history of how we see 
this incredible prophecy uh, realized and fulfilled in the time of revolution. Well, it all begins with the European public being very over Christianity. The, the church has been so corrupt for so long that basically everyone is sick and tired of the Christian faith. And to an extent, you can't blame them. The only representation they've seen of who God is, is a corrupt church. And so the people are slowly drifting away, saying, we're not interested in anything to do with Christianity or God anymore. And so the principles of Europe start to become more and more uh, atheistic, secular, a complete denial and rejection of who God is. Eventually, the corruption gets so bad that it's the French people who decide enough's enough. They're sick of their corrupt politicians. They're sick of the corruption of the church. They're starting a revolution. They're just tired of being oppressed for so long. And so they start a revolution. They start the famous French Revolution. And they're trying to get rid of every single symbol that relates to the church or the government that had come before them trying to distance themselves as much as possible from that. Now, if you wanted to reject God completely, what greater symbol would there be than to get rid of his word? Get rid of the word of God is a pretty deep symbol of your rejection of who God is. And that's exactly what the people at the time of the revolution decided to do. They decided to kill the Bible. On January 20, uh, January uh, 1st, 1973, the Bible was actually outlawed in the nation of France. And under this decree, Bibles were gathered up and burned. It was actually illegal to own a copy of the Bible. Ah, yeah. 1793. I keep, my, keep wanting to make it in the 1900s for some reason. 1793. My apologies. Not only that, Christian practices were completely outlawed. So you couldn't do baptisms. You couldn't have communion services. It was all uh, made illegal. Worship was also replaced. So rather than worshipping God, the people decided that they were going to worship reason. Human reason had become the new God to worship. And so uh, the famous Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, inside they had feasts worshipping reason rather than God. They would uh, have this very strange ritual where they'd put a, put a lady on a, a horse and cart and cart her around through the streets and she was dressed up like a goddess and everyone would worship the goddess of reason. It was a really crazy period of time. But all of this rejection of God and the Bible and God's law, it was unsustainable. It couldn't last forever. Uh, for example, uh, the government decided in 1972 to completely make all forms of divorce uh, legal. And so by the end of 1973, by the end of 19, by the end of 1793, goodness. This is good practice for me. By the end of 1793, there were 5,993 divorces in just the city of Paris. Nearly 6,000 in just a year in one city. Now, the sad thing about this was that 
uh, most of the time, <clears throat> when these uh, parents split up, the children were just abandoned. Children weren't taken into either one of the homes. And so, uh, the number of orphans in Paris during this time increased from 4,000 to 44,000 in just one and a half years. One and a half years, 44,000 children were abandoned because their parents uh, had split up and unfortunately had no interest in caring for them. So basically France went kind of down the tubes. They tried this experiment of trying to get rid of God and it just didn't work. And so the people decided maybe they were better off when the Bible was around. Maybe it was better to have the Bible than to have gotten rid of it. Now, how long does it say the two witnesses or the Bible is dead for? In Revelation 11, how long are the two witnesses dead for? <coughs> have a look in uh, verse 9. Verse 9, how long are they dead for? That's right. Three and a half days or three and a half prophetic years. Three and a half prophetic years. Okay, so the Bible is made illegal or it's banned, it's outlawed, it's killed uh, in the beginning of January 1793. So three and a half years, the two witnesses are supposed to be dead for three and a half years and then they resurrect, come back to life. What time or what year... Are we expecting 97 or 96? We'd expect 1796. And halfway through the year, we'd be in the month of June. 1796, month of June. Now, this would be pretty impressive if the Bible was able to accomplish this. Well, it was precisely on June 10th, 19... <coughs> 76 man these dates <laughs> it's good that i'm doing this with you because you guys can fact check me 1976 that the bible was made legal again now something like that just blows my mind because that is so precise it's so specific that god knew exactly three and a half years would pass before the people who had rejected and tried to kill the bible would go I think it needs to be resurrected. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly it. They woke up to the fact that this was not working. Exactly three and a half years later. What an incredible prophecy that God has given to us. And it's so cool, I think, that every time in Revelation where God, uh, sorry, where Satan tries to attack God's people, God always ends up winning anyway. And this is another story where it happens. Satan goes, all right, I'm going to kill the Bible. Watch me. I'm going to do it. All right. He killed the Bible for three and a half years. And then God goes, all right, you killed it. I'll raise it back from the dead. That's just how powerful God is. God's not going to allow Satan uh, to be the winner or the victor. Satan tried his best to suppress and destroy the Bible. And yet God ensured that it would be safe, that it would be preserved, that his people uh, could continue to have it. And of course, by the year 1798, that corrupt, persecuting church 
finally comes to an end. The Pope uh, was actually taken captive. And at that time, the church lost all of its political, religious, military power. It was all stripped away from it. God had finally intervened and he said, enough's enough. Uh, I'm going to give my people uh, a chance uh, of reprieve from this corrupt church. That's right. (coughs) Completely lost everything. So just to wrap up, the last few details here in this uh, chapter for us is what is this beast from the bottomless pit? It says the beast from the bottomless pit is what overcomes and kills them. Now, the beast is not the nation of France. That is where it happened, but that's not who killed. So uh, the nation of France embodied the spiritual attitudes of Egypt and Sodom and uh, Golgotha. That gives us where but not the identity of who, because this beast continues to reign for a very long time, uh, continues to be an antagonistic force to God's people. And it's not just one country or nation. Instead, the the attitude, the spirit that embodied uh, these people was that of what we now refer to today as atheism or secularism. This was a point in time where people rejected the church, rejected God, And a new philosophy came out, which was a rejection of God altogether, that he even existed. This is the period of time that you and I find ourselves living in today. We're living in a time in which the world is dominated by the worldview of atheism or secularism, that God is not real. There's no uh, merit to the belief of who God is. And it's incredible how massive a change atheism and secularism have made to our world. For example, (coughs) uh, where is it? Hey, where'd my slides go? Ah, here we go. (coughs) This is what uh, the world used to look like under the conception of God, um, God, you know, existing and his law being uh, authentic. We had the, the concept that humanity is made in God's image. And because of that, there's an obligation to love God and love our neighbor. If every person is made in God's image, everyone's worthy of dignity and respect. So we treat each other fairly. And then you kind of can split that into three things. So that means all human, life is, uh, all human life has value. So definitely there's no room for murder, uh, no room for abuse of any type, really. And also, no room for discrimination. Who, how can we discriminate based on race or age or, uh, or gender or anything like that when everyone is made in God's image? There's no room for discrimination. Uh, if everyone's made in God's image, that includes you. So you have to have a bit of respect for yourself, or we would say stewardship. You have to take care of the body which God has given to you. You have a responsibility uh, to show your body the respect that God designed for it. Uh, Even in the Bible, we're told that bodies are not our own. They belong to God. So we have to be good stewards. And uh, one of the things that that means is abstaining from sexual morality. The Apostle Paul says that that type of sin actually hurts ourselves. So if we're being good stewards of our body, uh, avoiding hurting ourselves, we'll avoid from that. And then uh, humanity is made in the image of God 
the way God made humanity is male and female, as we read in Genesis 1, 26, 28. So he gives us a working frame uh, to work within about how to interact as human beings. And he gives us the blessing of uh, marriage to uh, enjoy in that. Now, what the, this beast from the bottomless pit did was one by one knock out these core beliefs that came with the Christian faith. So, for example, uh, being made in the image of God, oh, hang on. <clears throat> being made in the image of God was replaced with the idea that, well, humanity is no different from actually animals. There's no in- image of God inherent in people. We're no different from a, a dog or a, you know, a fish or whatever. There's no difference. And that was, of course, brought about by Charles Darwin. So if humanity are just animals, there's nothing inherently good about us, well then, uh, a new moral system comes in. There's no love God, love your neighbor. You've probably heard this one before. Do what you want, just don't hurt anyone. Just don't hurt anyone. It's a very shallow moral moral worldview. And it also allowed for moral relativism, which is just the idea that morals are subjective. There's no objective morality. We've got the Enlightenment philosophers to thank for that. So we have this idea, well, just don't hurt anyone. But then uh, that immediately kind of gets contradicted because human life is no longer sacred or there's nothing innately good about it, not being made in the image of God. And as a result of that, people began uh, to, to murder and discriminate. So they couldn't even keep to the just don't hurt anyone rule because it immediately leads to hurting other people. Uh, One of the first was eugenics. Eugenics was created by a man, Francis Galton. I'll put his name. uh, His name should be up there somewhere. Ah, Here we go again. again. I I need to work on it a little bit more. Sorry, guys. Uh, Eugenics was created by a man, Francis Galton, who was the cousin of Charles Darwin. So Darwin came back from his uh, Galapagos Island trip created his Origin of Species book, and his cousin read it and went, this is fantastic, it's all about survival of the fittest. What if we applied this not just to the animal world, but the human world, since humans are just animals anyway? What if we do survival of the fittest amongst us? And according to him, survival of the fittest was getting the best genes possible. Let's make the human gene pool as perfect as possible. Now, if you're a... European man living uh, in the 1800s, in your mind, superior genes equals lighter skin. That was just the way that these people thought. And here we have, uh, really, my pointer is racism. This is the birthplace of kind of modern racism. This idea that, well, there are are plenty of different types of human beings, but some are just a bit more superior to others. And historically, it's primarily been uh, this idea that if you've got lighter skin, you're probably a bit better than everyone else. And so the eugenics movement began with the express purpose of eliminating supposed inferior genes. Eliminating anyone with slightly darker skin. And this is where, uh, sadly, the abortion movement came from. Abortion was a movement that came from the eugenics movement with the express purpose of trying to kill or eliminate uh, the life uh, of, primarily in America, African-American people 
before they were even born. So the eugenics movement wanted to be really efficient. They thought, why try and kill people or get rid of people when they're alive? Uh, just stop them from yeah, just stop them from existing entirely before they're even on the scene. So the abortion movement was an offshoot of eugenics. Another terrible thing eugenics did was uh, for people who were, you know, born and adults, was to forcibly sterilize them so they were unable to bear children. Forcibly sterilize them so they can't populate and finally we can get uh, the gene pool uh, to a better place. And of course, perhaps the saddest example of that was Adolf Hitler, who thought that he uh, and the Germans, the Aryan race, were the perfect ones. We were the, they were the perfect uh, people and they had to eliminate anyone with slightly inferior genes. I say slightly inferior with quotation marks. So uh, immediately we see that the devaluing of human life has terrible consequences and we've felt those consequences in very recent history. Uh, respect for self, well, no, nah, not really. <laughs> uh, there's no obligation to take care of yourself. You can if you want, but you don't have to. And so as a result, there's no problem with anything sexually immoral. What's the, what's the problem? Um, <coughs> here we go. So over on the left here, you can see these are some uh, key names from the eugenics movement, if you're interested. Uh, but then we also had the sexual liberation movement. It started with this fellow, Sigmund Freud, who basically said, well, if human beings are just animals, like Darwin said, if we're just animals and morals are relative, the only thing we have to worry about is just don't hurt anyone. Why are we restraining ourselves at all? Why, why don't we be just like the animals and have the same regard animals do for topics like sex, which is they just don't care? And so Freud was kind of the, the forerunner for this idea that humans should be able to do whatever they want when it comes to human sexuality. Um, and then from that, eventually, we get even things like uh, redefining male and female, redefining what marriage is. Uh, uh, there's just this big flow-on effect from people like Freud. Uh, and those are some of the, the big names there. If you're interested at all uh, on the history of this movement, I've got another sermon called The Beauty of Boundaries. I'd be happy to send you uh, the link to that. So you can see... You, we don't have to look very far to, to recognize this type of world. We don't have to look very far to go, yeah, this is a pretty accurate picture of the world that we live in today. And it's come about as a result of uh, this rejection of God. It's come as a result of this beast from the bottomless pit, atheism, this rejecting of who God is and saying, we're going to reject God, reject his laws, reject everything he says, and instead create uh, a new worldview, one that has caused an immense amount of suffering and pain to people. <clears throat> but, as we know, God is not going to allow this to continue forever either. Just, that's it. Just as he didn't allow the corrupt church to go on forever, he's not going to allow this beast to go on forever either. He is going to come and establish his kingdom on earth. So, what can we learn from Revelation 11 to conclude? The first is the Word of God has power and that God is always victorious. Yes. The, God, the Word of God has power. God always wins. Read Revelation. Every page you turn to, 
it says the same thing. God wins. God wins. God wins. Satan tries. He may have some temporary victories. He might win a few battles, but God wins the war. Number two, uh, we must treasure the Bible. If we think about how, first of all, think of how much Satan wants to attack the Bible, that should give us a good reason to think, okay, this is important. But then also look at the importance God places on it and wanting to preserve it. We need to treasure our Bible. We need to study it as well to avoid atheistic deception. It's uh, Personally, I've seen many people, maybe not many, I've seen some people in my friend circles uh, who've started to adopt some of the beliefs and practices of the beast from the bottomless pit, the atheist worldview in our world today, and it's taken them away from the church. We need to so desperately be studying our Bible to avoid being taken astray by the deceptions that we see in our world today and so that we can help other people, our friends and family, uh, who we can go to and help on their spiritual journeys. And finally, we need to study the Bible to avoid future Christian counterfeit deceptions. Uh, Satan is going to, right before Jesus comes, try to another, uh, pull a fast one on people and come with a false Christianity just like he did before. And so we need to be able to know how to recognize it and keep our eyes on who God truly is. Revelation 11 is a pretty cool chapter, isn't it? All about uh, the God preserving his word, Satan trying to kill it, God raising it up, and God ultimately being victorious. I hope this morning that you'll gain a, a greater appreciation for the word of God, the Bible that you hold in your hands, that you'll study it. Uh, to avoid deception, but not only to do that, but to also grow closer to the God who wrote it down for you.